Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So here we are in week five going through the book of Romans. This has been a lot of fun. It's been exciting for me. I I just enjoy the study, right? It's just enjoyable for me. So when I get to study through this, I'm like, it's not even really like I'm working anymore. It's just enjoyment. It isn't that a good place to be sometimes. And you go, man, this is the part of my job that I just really love and enjoy. And you go, this is good. So this is where I've been. It's just kind of a sweet spot for me. So uh, the Bible is full of all sorts of paradoxical statements, right? Where their opposites kind of collide and things of that nature. And the biggest one we see often is death and life, right? And, and the idea of losing your life to gain it, right? And so, so it's just, we see this with Jesus and we see this all throughout scripture, this idea of, of death giving way to life. And it's like I said, these kind of paradox kind of statements that you see pitted against each other. Um, Jesus talks about the need then to be born again. And you're like, well, how can I be born once I've already been born? And, and over and over throughout scripture, there's this idea of new life, that the old is gone and the new has come. And we're going to continue to, we're going to see that today in Romans chapter six, as we work through this. And uh, we find ourselves in one of these paradox moments in scripture. But before we look into chapter six, let's talk about how we got here for just a quick moment. So we will do the shortest abbreviation that we've done thus far, because I'm trying to be better about not re-preaching everything, right? So, so chapters one and two, what did we find out? We are all sinners. And that led all the way through chapter three, verse 20, that, that we are imperfect. We are flawed that every single one of us in This is not an indictment on our character or who we are because it's all of us. So this isn't casting someone down or looking down on any particular person. This is the reality of all of humanity. We are full of sin, right? It's just a part of what it is. We were born into it through Adam. And we talked about that last week a little bit. But then we see in, in, at the end of chapter three and in through verse four or chapter four and chapter five, that we are then saved by faith. We are justified and we are freely justified by grace, right? And we had this shift in this turn that we've gone from, we are sinners, we are bad people, we're wrong. And that sin separates us to now with through faith, we have justification and we are justified just as if I'd never sinned. And we are made right before the Lord. Verse and no, now righteousness is credited to us, right? So we have this, this moment and this shift and this change of, of our standing with the Lord. And so apart from Jesus, our sin is our truth. Our sin is what we carry then to the day of judgment. With Jesus, all of that then is covered by grace, right? So we, we see that now our truth and our standing before the Lord has changed. And that's a big, big deal. That's, that's huge. It's monstrous. That in of itself is enough to really get us motivated and excited about what the Lord is doing. But I think today as we work through uh, chapter six, there'll be more to get excited about. So last week, we ended by discussing the last two verses of chapter five. And I know we skipped a lot and I was like, we have to end here. Like this has to be stated. And it says this in chapter five, verses 20 and 21. It says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, 
so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see this shift and this change, right? So it was sin reigned in, in death. You know, so there's death. That's our condemnation. That is what is our due penalty. But then we have grace. And through grace, we now have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul doesn't, doesn't stop that thought process and jump to a new idea. It continues as we get into uh, chapter six. And so he's, he's, he set this up and we, as our mindset continues in this thought process of law versus grace. Okay. So we have this thought of this is what the law says. We cannot live to these, these standards of the law. We cannot fully walk in righteousness on our own and our own ability. There's no way we can ever do everything here. That's why there is grace. So the penalty for breaking sin is death. So here we are. We have grace now on this side. So we have eternal life. So Paul, not breaking thought, goes right into what we have called chapter six. And so let's just look at the first five verses this morning. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Which you go, that's a logical question, I guess, right? And then Paul says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that's almost a drop the mic moment, but it's a headset, so I can't. nor do I want to pay for a new one. So Paul goes right into building on this idea of law versus grace, right? It doesn't, he doesn't stop. And he, but he just adds in this thought or this idea of, well, since we have grace, since we've been given grace, can we not just continue sinning? Should we not just forget everything that we've ever been taught and go, it's okay, it's all under grace? And Paul emphatically says, by no means, which is his way of saying, don't be an idiot. Okay, he didn't say that, and that's not what he says. But he's saying, no, this is not what this means. This is not what grace is. So he's saying, don't live in this idea. So I, the thought is that somebody in this church has had this thought of, well, I can live how I want. Here's what happens oftentimes in this portion of scripture. You have two extremes of thought process. You have the idea of legalism, that says, okay, we have grace, but we need to live strictly by the law. We need to walk, and it's this idea of, of legalistic, if you step outside of the realm, all of a sudden you are wrong and you're doomed to hell, right? And then you have the polar opposite, which is also not right, which is this license to sin. And so we have to see where, where, what is Paul really stating? So he says, no, it's not this, this legalistic approach that, that there is, you know, that, that it is right, right, right. Or, or once you step wrong, like God's flicking you out of the hand of grace and good luck crawling your way back to the father, right? No, that's not what it is. But he's also saying it's not then also this freedom to constantly and willingly live in sin, so he's saying, by no means, because of grace, do we continue in this. So, so here's what we have to see is this. And, and through chapter six and seven, Paul answers some questions. And obviously, today we're focusing on six. But in this portion, the word no is repeated three times. 
And that's important to us. So whenever we see a repetitive word, we need to give special attention to that word because it is clearly being used to imp- implicate something or to, to drive something home. And, and I think right here, Paul is explaining that this is basic doctrine that all Christians need to be aware of. They need to know this. And so he's telling this to the Roman church. You need to know this. You need to know this. And so, so here we are. So the basic truth is that the believer's identification with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection Just as we are identified with Adam in sin and condemnation, so we are now identified with Christ in righteousness and justification. Uh, I came across a diagram this week that shows kind of the connection to the Lord as it's explained through Romans. And and, and it's split into two parts. We have Romans 3.21 through 5.21 and then Romans 6 through 8. And so uh, you see here, so in Romans 3.21, so substitution, he died for me. And then you flip over to 6 through 8, identification, I died with him. And then the 320, three through five, it says, he died for my sins in 68. He died unto sin. And notice the differences. Uh, and then he paid sin's penalty. He broke sin's power. And the justification, righteousness imputed, so put to my account. And then sanctification, righteousness imparted, made part of my life. And then saved by his death, saved by his life understanding that Christ didn't just die, but there is power in his resurrection. There's power in his resurrection. So let's pick up then uh, answering some of these questions as we go through um, this chapter today. So the first point today is this, the believer is dead to sin. And so in, in 6.1, Paul asks the question, he said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And so Paul's illustration here that he, that he brings in is this idea of baptism as we jump into uh, verses two through three and, and, and continue moving. But so, so he jumps into this idea and this thought of baptism. And so the idea of baptism would have been understanding, it was something they understood because water baptism was already a part of the church. It was from the beginning, right? We even see that in the book of Acts that, that they would repent and then they would be baptized, right? Now, here's what we know. Water baptism is not the act of salvation. Salvation comes through spirit. So when, here's how this works. So when you ask Jesus into your heart, there is that initial infilling, right? That is being baptized into Christ. So we have that moment where, it's when, like Jesus said to his disciples, he says, he breathed on them and said, receive my Holy Spirit, right? That is that salvation moment. And he says, okay, so this is not water baptism, but he uses this idea of water baptism to illustrate what he's talking about. So the word baptism in the Greek uh, basically has two meanings. It has to dip or to immerse, right? So to put under and to bring up, right? But then there's a figurative meaning that you have to be aware of and understand, and it means to identify with. And I think Paul in this moment is implying both meanings because he wants them to have the imagery of actual submersion and coming back up. But he also wants them to have the understanding of of being identified now with Christ. So there's this this two part to the understanding of the word that I think we need to carry through as we follow through this understanding. So what all does this look like? What does it entail as as we see this in relation to our understanding of our relationship with Christ. So we have this experience of water baptism and then this moment of salvation. So you have to understand, one, there are two separate things, right? Water baptism is necessary and it's good because it is our public statement 
of an inward experience, right? So it's an outward expression of an inward experience. So, so what has happened in us, we are now taking public. So we have asked Jesus into our heart. We have repented of our sin. There is this life change that has taken place in us already. And, and it is through the saving grace of Jesus, right? And so then we go and we, are, we say, I want to be baptized to tell the world around me that I have Jesus in my heart, that my life has been changed. So you go under and back up. Well, what does that signify? So here's what it shows. It shows Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so Paul is explaining this in terms that they would understand. They go, okay, listen, I understand fully this idea of water baptism. Paul's saying, well, understand its depth and its magnitude. What are you signifying in your life? And so he's saying, you died with Christ. And so when you died with him, you also died to sin. So he's explaining our new relationship with sin. Because as we, as we show the being baptized with Christ that we died and we were buried and then resurrected. So it's this new life. So now our relationship with sin dies. There's a difference. So baptism by immersion pictures the believer's identification with Christ. And this is what Paul's trying to signify and show. So, so, He's not saying that their immersion put them into Jesus. We following this? We're tracking here. But what he's showing is that this is an example and showing and illustrating exactly what has happened by the work of the Spirit in you at the point in the moment of salvation. So this means that our relationship with sin has changed. Let's say we have a thief, and he is a habitual thief, and he steals all the time. If it's shiny, if it's expensive, he wants it, he's going to take it, right? So he, it's this constant thing. Well, so say he dies, Guess what he will no longer be able to do? Steal, right? Because he has died. He is now dead to the sin that he was caught in and his stealing and his thievery and all of those kind of things. Because not only did he die, but physically he no longer has senses. So he's not aware of shiny and bright things that attract him and draw his attention, right? So in the same way, as believers, we go, you know what? I, I, I have died then to sin. So in Jesus, we have died to sin. We no longer want to continue in sin. But we're not only dead to sin, but we're also alive in Christ. We have been raised from the dead and now walk in the power of his resurrection. I think it's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The story of Lazarus is a great illustration of kind of all of this for us. In John 11, we see Jesus kind of show up to this, this, this tomb where a friend of his has passed away, right? He has died and he shows up and Lazarus has been dead now for four days, which means after four days, it's, it's, it's pretty much a guaranteed thing, right? It, it's like, no, he's dead. And so Jesus walks up and, and Lazarus in the tomb. And what does he say to him? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And so Lazarus then takes in a breath. He gets up and he walks out and he's wrapped still in grave clothes, and what does Jesus then say? He says, loose him, using the King James, because sometimes things just stick in your mind from when you were a child and you just forever go that way. He says, loose him, meaning take those grave clothes off of him. And then what do we see? We see Jesus then reunited with his friend and he is sitting with him at the banquet. And it's like, oh, it's this great, great moment. So here's what we see. He was dead. He was raised from the dead. He was set free to walk in the newness of life and then seated with Christ. All of these illustrate the spiritual truths of our identification with Christ. Here's what I know, though. Too many believers live in Good Friday 
and don't walk in resurrection Sunday. They believe in the power of the cross for their sin to be forgiven, but they don't trust in the resurrection enough to walk in its freedom. And Paul is writing to us in this moment, this is not how it is meant to be. We've been raised to life with Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. That we die to our sin and we are raised to life in Christ. So if we truly have stepped into this new life with Christ, then we aren't deliberately living in sin. Second thing is this. The believer should not serve sin. So the believer is dead to sin. The believer should not serve sin. Let's look at verse six. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Sin is a terrible master. And it finds a willing servant in the human body. In our flesh, it is easy for sin to take control. It is easy for sin to be our master, right? And we all know that. We're aware of that. We've all had our our, our sins and our struggles and things that we've gone through, and we see it prevalent in our life. And and, and looking back, you go, oh, so it's not something we celebrate. Man, now I'm going to get on a tangent, and if I don't slow down, because, oh, I heard a song this week that just about made me come undone, and I was like, I'm going to get off of that tangent. We'll talk later if you have. But we don't celebrate in it. We celebrate the goodness of God. Amen. We celebrate the grace and the forgiveness and the transformation and the change. And okay, we'll just move on. The body can be controlled either by sin or by God, by righteousness. But man's fallen nature, which is not changed at conversion, understand. Our fallen nature is not changed at conversion. Only the status in which we live in changes, right? Gives sin a beachhead from which it can attack and then control. So Paul expressed the problem in, in Romans seven eighteen, and I know we'll get there next week, but, but I think it, he, he sums this up so well about who we are. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. So here we have Paul, who I think we would all agree was a believer and had been converted and was a Christian, right? And he says, I still have a sinful nature, right? He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. How many of you, and don't raise your hands, but feel like, man, that is me, that is me, that is me. I have such a, I want to do good, but time and time and time again, I fail. There's something cool I found in verse 6 of chapter 6 this week. The word done away with, that phrase done away with, translates to mean render inactive. In the, in the King James, it says destroy. But it doesn't have this, this sense of annihilation. It just means to render inactive. So it's as if it's broken down. So when he says, uh, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so it might be broken down, might be rendered inactive. 
So if the body has been rendered inactive, we do not need to be controlled by sin any longer. Again, looking at chapter 7, because these two tie in so much together, and we'll get more into it next week. The same word rendered inactive, or the same word as as destroyed, that we find in that verse is also in chapter 7, verse 2. And there it's translated to released. And, And it's speaking about the Hebrew law in marriage. And it says that if, if a woman's husband dies, she is loosed from the law of her husband and is free to marry again. So he's saying like, all of a sudden, this is over, it's, it's done. And she is free to marry whoever, not that she was enslaved, understand what we're saying, but, but she is now, according to the law, free. So there is a change again in the relationship. So this shows the same thing with us. There is the death of the old man. We are released from our relationship to sin. Sin wants to be our master. Sin wants to control us. But we died with Christ, causing a change in our relationship with sin. So now God can be our master. Paul is not describing an experience. He's stating a fact. He's stating a fact. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Understand this, not freed to sin, freed from sin. And that's a big distinction. The grace we have been given gives us the freedom to live outside of sin. We have to understand our new relationship with Christ. Sin and death have no dominion over Christ, right? He died and defeated sin in that moment, resurrection, right? So now sin has no control, sin has no dominion, death has no dominion, no control over Christ. And if we died then with him and we walk in his resurrection power, guess what? Sin has no dominion over us, death has no dominion over us. We walk then in the resurrection power of Christ. Again, not stuck just on, the re- on, on, on Good Friday, but walking in the power of Resurrection Sunday. Verse 11 tells us this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to understand that there is a shift in our relationship. There is a shift in how we have to interact any longer with this sin that so easily entangles There is a change now, and we have the authority and the power to then walk in the resurrection power. We can count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't telling his his readers to feel as though they were dead to sin or to even understand it, but to fully act on it, to claim it for themselves. So you know what? I don't have to be this way anymore. I can walk in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. I can walk in the freedom that comes through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I can walk in the fullness of the gospel, set free and delivered from the sin that I once was bound and enslaved to. The third thing is this. The believer should be offered as a sacrifice. So the word offer is used five times in this next section as it continues, um, as we continue this. So the, what we see is whenever you see, again, I've said this, when you see repetition, we pause and we give, we give special attention to that word and we give special attention to what is being stated and what is, what is the author trying to imply. And so Paul uses this word five times. 
And the word offer is the Greek word uh, parastimi, parastimi. And it means to offer, to present, to cause, to serve. It's the same word that we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. So whenever we understand that we are no longer under the power of sin, we no longer have to give in to that sin. He says, now we can offer ourselves in over to the Lord. And so how do we offer ourselves into righteousness? And, and Paul's gonna talk more about this when we get into chapter 12, but understand he, he, he speaks to it even in this moment. So the question becomes how? How do we offer ourselves over to righteousness as opposed to sin? Because we've already stated, we still have a sinful nature. And how many of you know that we constantly have to fight it and that it doesn't want to just put itself to rest. It doesn't just go, you know what? I'm going to take the day off. You just live in complete righteousness today and have a, have a great time and just experience the glory of the Lord as you walk in perfection, right? No, our sin nature doesn't ever go, hey, I'm not feeling well today. I need to call in sick. Is it all right if I come in a little late, right? Those conversations don't happen. Our sin nature is alive and well, and it's a constant battle that we fight and we fight and we fight and we fight, right? And so how then do we offer ourselves over to righteousness and putting away our desires for sin? So Paul addresses this and he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Another translation for instrument would be as a tool of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer, again, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument or as a tool of righteousness. Say, Lord, let me then be offered over to you. Let me give myself over to you to be used for righteousness that I can live in such a way that every part of my body is glorifying the Lord in the way I live. He says, he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So Paul just says, like, just don't do it. You're like, oh, great. That's, that's really encouraging. I just stop, right? It's pretty much what Paul's saying. I saw this thing years ago, um, and, and, and it was a really great little skit, and this guy is being... Uh, a counselor in the moment, and this lady comes in, and she's like, well, I keep having this thing happen over and over, and every time I do this, this happens, and then he just looks at her, and he goes, stop. Don't do it. Well, but, but what if I feel this deal? And he's like, okay, so if you're starting to feel like you have to, he goes, don't do it, right? And it's this whole thing. That's essentially what Paul is saying right here. He's like saying, stop. So what are we saying? He's saying this is an act of the will based on the knowledge we have of what Christ has done for us. And you may go, man, that's not the most encouraging thing. That means, here's what it means, is that you have died to sin. You walk now in the resurrection power. Therefore, you have the will and the knowledge in hand to be able to overcome and combat the sinful nature that wants to easily pull you down. It is an intelligent act, not the impulsive decision of the moment based on some emotional stirring. It is important to notice the tenses of the verbs uh, in, in these verses. A literal translation. You ready? Do not constantly allow sin to reign in your mortal body so that you are constantly obeying its lust. Neither constantly yield your members to, uh, of your body as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but once and for all, yield yourselves to God. Once and for all, just say, you know what? 
I'm not living that way anymore. I am choosing righteousness. I am choosing righteousness. And Paul describes that once and for all surrender in chapter 12. So in a few weeks, we will get more into what he says in offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. At some point in your life, you just have to make a final and complete decision to surrender to Jesus. Withholding nothing, surrendering all to him. Why does he want our bodies? First of all, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So why else would he want our body and the members of our body? Because he's saying, listen, if I'm going to dwell in you, if I'm going to reside in you, if you are the temple in which I live in, I want to know that there is righteousness within that temple. When you look at the Old Testament and you walk through, the, when we talk through some of these things, just the, the nature of, of the cleansing process for someone to enter into the temple where the Holy Spirit resided, right? Where the Ark of the Covenant was and all these, to enter into that place, it was a strict cleansing process. So the Lord's saying, listen, I still want to know that you are pursuing righteousness, that you are choosing me over sin. He says, so first of all, first and foremost, he wants your body because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And second, Paul writes here that our bodies are meant to be used as weapons and tools for righteousness as it is. He's saying, use your bodies then for righteousness. Do things that, that bring righteousness, that, that help glorify the name of the Lord, not things that, that, that are engaging in our sin and not things that are pursuing. He said, no, pursue righteousness. And the last question we have to answer today is why? Why do we need to offer ourselves to live in righteousness? So there's a few things that as we, as we work through these last few verses um, that I think are very, very applicable. So let's look at verse 14 and 15. It says, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So the first thing is this. Why? Because we've been given favor. And what I mean by favor is we've been given the grace of God. That in and of itself should be enough to spur us on then to righteousness in the pursuit of godliness. Because we've been given grace. It's because of the grace of God that we yield ourselves to him, that we turn ourselves, submit fully to God. Paul has proved we're not saved by the law. Can we, can we all agree? I think I've almost beat a dead horse there. We are not saved by the law. We are saved by grace. The fact that we are saved by grace does not give us an excuse to sin, but it does give us reason to obey. Sin and law, they, they go together. And we see it in 1 Corinthians. He says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Since we are not under law, this is now not the verse anyway. Since we are not under law, but under grace, sin is robbed of its strength. Under grace, we have authority over sin. It is weak now in comparison to the righteousness of God in us and we can overcome it. It has to submit. Here's the deal. If Paul stopped there, that in and of itself would be enough for us to go, wow, we've been given grace. And because of that, we have reason to pursue righteousness. 
what gives us what we need to desire to do the will of the Lord. One of my favorite books uh, is called The Cost of Discipleship. And it's written by, uh, it was a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you've ever read Bonhoeffer, you know he's just awesome. Like, I, I mean, just an incredible man. He, a little bit of his story, Dietrich Bonhoeffer received his doctorate, his first doctorate at like age 19 in theology. So he's just a brilliant mind in the first place. But he went on during World War II as a German and fought a, a, within the, the nation against uh, the Nazis and, and as a spy, as a pastor, ultimately dying in a concentration camp uh, as a German within the concentration camp. Uh, shortly, two weeks after the war ended, the week after they killed him in the concentration camp, his camp was liberated. Um, he was 39 years old and just wrote some of the most incredible, theologically rich statements and just incredible stuff. So he wrote this book, his first kind of like doctoral thesis was The Cost of Discipleship. Incredible, incredible book. The very first chapter of that book is called uh, it's The Cost of Grace is what he talks about, just the, the costliness of grace. And he uses a term that he actually got from his mother called cheap grace, And he said, too many people live with the mentality of cheap grace. And he says, you have to recognize and remember what the grace you've received actually cost. That Jesus gave his life, endured the pain, endured the cross, endured the beating, all so that his grace might be given. It is not a cheap thing that you've received, yet you treat it as such. This is his words. This is, I mean, it's, it's a heavy statement. He's saying, you cannot treat grace as something you place on the shelf for a moment only to grab it when you need it. So that's cheap grace. That is belittling the cost of the grace you have received, but rather because of the grace you've received, you walk then in righteousness. You pursue the glory of the Lord. And you say, with all that's within me, Father, I fully surrender and submit to the goodness of you and all that you have for me. Don't let sin be your master any longer because you are under grace. Grace isn't the freedom to sin. It's the freedom from sin. And we get to walk it out. We get to live it out. And then verse 16, it says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. So the second thing is this, and the why is freedom. We have favor, not freedom. The illustration of the master and the servant, it's obvious. Right? Whatever you yield to becomes your master. So whatever sin you, you surrender to becomes your master. Or if you surrender to righteousness, God becomes your master, right? So before you were saved, uh, you were the slave to sin. It controlled you, right? 
And some of you go, yeah, I get it. I was, that was me, right? I know that. And now that you belong to Christ, you are freed from that. And you're made a servant of Christ. Romans 6.19 suggests that the Christian should be as enthusiastic in surrendering to the Lord as he was in surrendering to sin. I read a, pastor, a statement from a pastor this past week, um, and he said this. He said, a friend once said to me, I want to be as good a saint as I was a sinner. And he goes on to say, I knew what he meant because of his, in his unconverted days, he was almost the chief of sinners. And he's like, man, this guy was really bad. And when he says, like, I, I want to be as good for the Lord as I was for sin, he's like, I, I want to make this whole shift and change, right? And, and that's kind of the idea that we're finding here. He's saying, so as, as, as surrendered to sin as you were, as, as under its control as you were, in the same way, cast that off and say, Lord, I want to be as surrendered to you. I want to be as surrendered to you. I want to walk in your righteousness with all that's within me. And I want to live in this freedom. And he says this, that the the unsaved person is free. They're free from righteousness. But his bondage to sin only leads him deeper and deeper and deeper into bondage. And it becomes harder and harder to do what is right. And we see that with the prodigal son. He wants his freedom and he goes to his father and he's like, give me my inheritance. I want to be free from your home and these rules. I don't want, you know, and he's like, I'm going to set off and I'm going to, and he goes and what happens? He begins to squander everything and he falls further and further and further into the trap of the sin that he was in pursuit of until ultimately he became the servant of a man and he was eating from the pig's trough. And he had this realization in that moment of even the workers at my dad's house eat better than this. And he returns home. It was only when he returned home and yielded to his father that he found true freedom. All of a sudden, there was this complete shift and change in freedom. So verse 21, what benefit did you reap at at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? How many of you have things that you're ashamed of? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm raising mine. That's all. It's fine. I'm not looking. Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The third thing is this is fruit. Favor, freedom, and fruit. If you serve a master, you can expect to receive wages, right? You work for someone, you get paid, right? You agree to a payment and you say, okay, yes, if I, if I do these things, I will receive payment. So, so understand, sin pays wages. And it's clearly written, those wages are death, but God also pays. And he pays on holiness and everlasting life. In the old life, we produce fruit that made us ashamed, right? In the new life in Christ, we produce fruit that glorifies God and brings joy to our lives. We usually apply Romans 6.23 to the lost. And and, and certainly it does, in fact, apply to say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see that and we apply that typically to the But understand and remember, Paul is writing to a church, So he's saying, beware, 
whichever you are choosing, it will pay its wages. And so it applies to both and, right? The understanding that if I start choosing sin over righteousness, there is in fact penalty for my sin. So here's what we see. If you look then, First uh, John five seventeen says, there is a sin unto death. And then also First Corinthians eleven thirty four. for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. Samson, uh, for example, would not yield himself to God, but preferred to yield to the lust of his flesh. And what was the result? Death. And now, yes, God brought a great victory through that moment, but ultimately he had to receive the punishment of his sin. If the believer refuses to surrender his body to the Lord, but uses its member for sinful purpose, then he is in danger of being disciplined by the Father. Let me say this. If you call yourself a believer and you never feel conviction or you never feel that God is disciplining you, I would be on my face repenting and crying out to the Father who loves you. Because the reality is, and Hebrews shows us this, that God disciplines his children. How many of you would say you have ever wanted to spank your neighbor's kids? Just, you can be honest. It's a safe place. Safe place, Right? You go, man, I would really like to discipline my neighbor's children. Just FYI, they've wanted to do the same for your children. I've just thrown that out there, right? Just, just call it what it is. See, because, I, but we don't have the authority to do so, right? I, listen, we used to have a neighbor kid who was actually really great. He was a lot of fun, but from time to time, he got a little out of control. And I'm like, Gavin, I'm about to call your dad. And I never did, but it's like, it was always stirred up in me. It's like, if you were my kid, I promise you what, right? And you had those thoughts, right? But it wasn't my place to do so. I didn't have the authority. Here's the reality. If you are God's child and you begin to wander and you begin to pull away and all of a sudden you begin to feel that stirring in the pit of your stomach and that conviction and that work of the spirit, can I tell you, be glad, rejoice in that. Because you know what that is? That is a father disciplining his child and saying, let's bring this back and let's correct this. But if you get to the point to where you no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, be, be fearful and repent. Because the Lord wants to draw his children back into alignment. And he's saying, listen, and I would even pose the question, say, say you've never felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Man, you need to be at a place where you go, Father, um, am I yours? Have I ever really truly made this, this commitment? Am I, I want to live this out. I want, I, you know, because the reality is, is as we surrender fully to the Lord, we become, as his children, he wants to draw us in to alignment to his word because he is creating in us to become the men and women of God that he's called us to be. He is shaping us into the image of Christ. He is shaping us into the image of Christ. As we get through these next few chapters, we begin working through this process of sanctification. And sanctification is good, and it is hard. And it is that constant reminder that we have not yet arrived, and that there is always something in us that God is shaping and changing and causing us to become more and more like him. And I'll invite the worship team. Here's what I've learned in my life. One of the greatest ways to live outside of sin, 
One of the greatest ways to live in freedom and apart from sin is through the act of true repentance. And true repentance is to the point to where, hear me, I'm not just talking forgiveness of sins. I'm talking repentance where you say, Lord, I want to be done with this. I want to turn from this. And you go to the Father in humility and you say, oh God, forgive me. Give me the strength to live outside of this. And I've even seen in my own life, there are times that now, mind you, hear me, what I'm about to say is not necessary for salvation, but it is good for us in our sanctification, in our righteousness. There may be people that you need to go and repent to and say, I'm sorry. These are what I, this is what I've been doing. This is how I've been living. I've not been honest with you. I've not lived, the, you know what I mean? And, and those moments are some of the most freeing moments of your life where you go, wow, I have fully surrendered and submitted to the Lord in this moment. And I repent before the Father and I say, oh God, oh God, forgive me, forgive me. Let, let me no longer live this way, right? And it's that pursuit of saying, I'm denying my sinful nature and I'm pursuing the righteousness of God. I'm leaning into who God has called me to be, to become and to be shaped into the image of Christ. So this morning, I do wanna do a couple things. The first thing I wanna do is give you an opportunity to ask Jesus into your heart. I talked about the weight and the cost of his grace, and I talked about what it cost for him to give himself for us and the grace that we've been given. That is not cheap grace, and we don't, we don't need to treat it as such that it is, it is valuable and it is the most precious gift we could ever be given, the most costly gift we've ever been given. And how do we receive that grace? It is the easiest, easiest thing in the world. Romans will tell us later that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, then we will be saved. We will be saved. And that's the extent of it. There's that element of, of, of repentance and say, oh God, forgive me. And through that, his, his blood is, covers all. Uh, it says, though, though your, your sins were like scarlet, they'll be made white as snow. Isaiah tells us, they'll be made white as snow and we'll be cleansed and purified before the Lord and we will stand in right. We'll be made righteous, justified. And he wants to give his grace freely. He wants to give it to you. And it just takes your, your heart to be open to receive in your heart to say, Father, I want you in my life. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give a moment, give, give you an opportunity to say, you know what? I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. And there, there may be one, there may be none, but I am never going to miss the opportunity to give the gospel. So if on the count of three, if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Ryan, I need Jesus in my life. If that's you, on the count of three, just slip up your hand. One, two, and three. If there's anybody this morning, anybody at all, I'll give you the chance. I'm going to give you the opportunity. Anybody at all, dude. Amen, amen. Okay, with every head bowed still in this moment, as we just continue, you say, Pastor Ryan, there are things in my life, and I'm not, I'm not coming to ask you, I'm not coming to uh, have you give me a report. I, I am simply saying, you know what? There are things in my life where I know that the, the Holy Spirit is trying to, to bring me back in alignment, that God is kind of disciplining me and I feel it and I know it in the moment. And when I'm doing these things, you say, you know what? There are things in my life that I need to repent of. 
that I need to say, God, forgive me. Let me be done with these things because I want to be shaped into the image of Christ. And I want to walk away from all of that. And I want to pursue righteousness. If you say that to me this morning, if you just, just raise your hand, I want to pray over you. If you just say, there are things in my life that I just need to be done with. On the count of three, one, two, three. If there's anybody, I see hand there, hand there. Anybody else, hand there. Anybody else this morning, anybody else. Anybody else? Because listen, if you have a hand there, I see it, I see it, I see it. Here's the deal. Listen, this is, is the this is so good for your heart. This is good for your soul. This is good for your relationship. You want, you want breakthrough in your life? Sometimes it's those things that, that are the barriers that are holding us back that the Lord is saying, if you would do away with this, I could do more. I could, you would make more room for me in your life. You would get that out. So if there's anybody else, one more time, anybody else this morning, say that, Pastor Ryan, I just there are things that I need to repent of. There are things I need to be done with. Anybody else, anybody else? Amen, amen. I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to ask that the Lord just begins to stir in your heart a brokenness and a longing and a humility that says, oh God, let me no longer be that way. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, oh Lord, that as you begin to work and stir in this place, God, we pray that in this moment, in this time right now, that as you begin to, to weed out, God, all of the unnecessary, Lord, as you begin to draw us back to a place of righteousness and, and bring us back into alignment to where you have us to be, Lord, I pray that as we surrender to you with, with a heart of repentance, as we surrender to you with a desire to be done with and to be rid of the old nature, God, that we step into the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, that we no longer just walk in Good Friday forgiveness, but we walk in the overcoming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we stand in it, that we believe it, Lord, that we call on it. And we say, Father, fill me with that power so that I can walk according to your word, Lord, led by your spirit, filled with your spirit so that I can overcome the, the battles that I face on a daily basis. So Lord, through a moment of humility and repentance, God, I say, break me down so I can be built up to be the men and women of God that you have called us to be. So Lord, in the name of Jesus, we claim righteousness in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we say freedom from sin, freedom from the bondage, freedom from the things that easily entangle and pull us down, Lord, that begin to choke out the life that you have given us. And so Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray freedom, freedom, freedom in the name of Jesus. Lord, as we walk in humble submission to the Lord, as we walk in the grace that you've given us, as we pursue the righteousness of the Father, Lord, I pray that you bring freedom. Lord, let there be complete restoration in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.